Hello, my name is Jeremy Lightnin. I'm the youth minister at Shoreland Lutheran High School, and I'm here with uh, Pastor Michael Zarling, uh, pastor at Epiphany, well, actually now Water of Life uh, Lutheran Church in Racine, Wisconsin. And uh, we're going to discuss with you today chapter 15 and chapter 16 of Mark, and then the first three chapters of the prophet Jonah. So with Mark chapter 15, we're going to be looking at Jesus' suffering and death. Uh, one thing that jumped out at me was Isaiah 53.7 in correlation with uh, 15.5. But Jesus still did not answer anything in front of Pilate. Isaiah 53.7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent in front of its shears, he did not open his mouth. And I thought this was interesting in study that this verse was the prophecy that drew the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8. The uh, thing that strikes me about what you just said is that um, you might think that there's no communication going on. If Jesus is not talking, then uh, he's not communicating anything, but, but really he is. Uh, it's saying something when you don't say something. Uh, I think of the way that, uh, well, it used to be that pastors could refuse funerals for people who were not members of their churches, and uh, now it's like, well, you, you got to do a funeral so that you can preach the gospel for everybody. And that sounds great, but it also does send a message when when you don't say something. I'm, I'm sort of getting off track on a little bit of a soapbox there, sorry. Uh, we should really be thinking about Jesus' death uh, and uh, his suffering. And the the other thing that struck me in the first couple of verses is the fact that it was uh, just starting to be daybreak. So the trial of the Sanhedrin was really illegal the night before. It, it shouldn't have been a binding decision. Uh, and then they brought Jesus to Pilate because they had no power over the death penalty. And then I want to focus on Barabbas. Verse 15 says, Since he wanted to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And I wanted to focus on how is Barabbas representative of us. So I want you as listeners to imagine being Barabbas. That you're walking to your death in chains. And when you least expect it, all of a sudden you're a free man. You hear the shouts, crucify him, crucify him. But those words are not meant for you even though you are a rebel, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. And then you see Jesus of Nazareth. He is beaten and bloody from his flogging. He is forced to carry his cross to Golgotha. You had anticipated that today would be your day, your day for flogging and crucifixion. But Jesus has taken your punishment. He is carrying your cross. He's going to be crucified between two criminals, and maybe they were criminals that... We're right alongside of you. Uh, they are, Jesus is where you should be. Jesus is taking your death and giving you his freedom. We are the rebels, the murderers, the insurrectionists. We should be imprisoned in hell and condemned to eternal death. But Jesus took our beating, our flogging, our cross, our death. He was the innocent who was exchanged for the guilty, and now you and I have freedom, a new lease on life through Jesus Christ, the King, who was crucified in our place. As I respond to that, um, 
I, I just think of another overlap that we have with Barabbas, and that is that um, he didn't, we, we don't know whether or not he repented. Uh, he certainly had, must have made an impression on him that this other man died in his place. But uh, the good news is that uh, regardless of whether or not he had a change of heart, he was still set free. And that's something that God does for all of us as well, that uh, we are forgiven regardless of whether you believe it or not, uh, regardless of whether you end up benefiting from it or not, you still are set free. Yeah, you're right. I did look to see if there was any anything in church history about Barabbas becoming a Christian, and you know, you can't always believe everything you find in Wikipedia. <laughs> that's that's your uh, your go-to. That's my go-to. No, center. I didn't look yeah. on Wikipedia. No. Um, the I, I was also thinking about this process of the soldiers mocking Jesus. These are Roman soldiers, first of all. Uh, it's interesting to think about how. Uh, well, we have no proof that uh, when they undressed Jesus that they just left his uh, undergarments on, and uh, it, it certainly would have been a, a lot of cultural tension as you think about the differences between Jews and Gentiles. Um, but th- this was also something that everyone likes to do. You can sort of see Pilate throwing Jesus to the wolves, more or less, uh, because he knows, I, I need to let these guys let off some steam. And uh, the, I don't want them rebelling against their overlord that's me. Uh, so I'll give them somebody that they can sort of play overlord with and beat up that is an overlord. Uh, the purple robe was probably more like a faded crimson, what would have been a, maybe a Roman military officer's robe that uh, nobody was using anymore. And uh, it, it sort of let those soldiers blow off some steam in a very violent way. Um, uh, and and it just it it makes you sad to think of what Jesus suffered. Yeah, and when you look at the flogging, I remember when the Passion of the Christ first came out, and I was showing it to a group of teenagers, and you know they were doing what teenagers do; they were kind of giggling and laughing during the movie until it got to the flogging, and then every single person, uh, even the boys, they were dead stone silent. And the flogging in the Passion of the Christ it is brutal. I watched it on YouTube. Uh, in preparation for this, and you know, it's long. It's about six to eight minutes, and to just to see those soldiers, like you said, Pastor Lightning, that they're letting off some steam. As I read in one commentary, this is personal for them. Uh, but I wanted to focus too on uh, my sermon for this Sunday is going to be on Jesus' transfiguration from Mark chapter nine, and twenty-five years as a pastor, fifty years of being a Christian, I have never put the two together of the Mount of Transfiguration and Mount Calvary. And I'm going to do that in the sermon. I want to give you some of those uh, tidbits that on the, Mount of Cal- uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's the Mount of Glory. And Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John on one mountain and shows who he really was. And they were going to need this vision of glory emblazoned in their eyes because In a few days, they're going to see Jesus on Mount Calvary, uh, crucified in shame and blood. Jesus' clothes on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration were radiant. Mark says they were gleaming, that they were brighter than anyone could bleach them. And yet, Jesus' clothes were stripped from his bloody body and then gambled between the soldiers. 
that on the one mountain he had Elijah and and Moses, but on the other mountain he had two criminals on his right and his left. On the one mountain he talks to Peter, he talks to Elijah and and Moses about his exodus, his departure, his death, and then on the other mountain he talks to the one criminal who is repentant about his exodus, his departure, saying, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Those are some really neat overlaps, and I am so sorry, but I, I, I have to say something, and it's because I am contentious and I am opinionated, uh, and I also happen to know that there there might just be former members of one of my churches listening to this, um, and they have heard me say, uh, probably more than once, that it never actually says in the crucifixion account that Calvary is a mountain. Have, have, you, have you heard this before? I have not, so you go ahead. Okay. Well, and this was another thing in our, in our Holy Land tour that the tour guide of uh, one of the garden tomb sites pointed out that uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull, it may very well have been that the uh, uh, contour of the side of a cliff looked like a skull, but it was actually the place where they would throw uh, convicted uh, uh, criminals in ancient Judaism off of the cliff. They had these sites. It's like Jesus at uh, Nazareth when they wanted to throw him off the cliff. That's how they would start the process of stoning. Somehow it had evolved from the process of just throwing stones at the convict that first you would throw him off of a cliff and then throw stones at him if he survived that. And that's kind of what they were going to do with Jesus, it seems like, in Nazareth. Well, they have this spot in uh, Jerusalem that uh, archaeologists are pretty sure is, that's now where the garden tomb was, that they're pretty sure that was a spot where they did these executions by throwing off the cliff and then stoning to death. And uh, they make an argument, it's not airtight, but they make an argument saying that uh, the Romans could have used that then as a familiar site for executions. And, uh, and our, our tour guide pointed out, if you, if you scour the Gospels, uh, you're not necessarily going to find that Calvary or Golgotha was a hill. But I do like, I do like a lot of those uh, comparisons between Moses and Elijah on either side and the criminals on either side. So I don't want to totally just sink your... Well, well that's, that's fine, Pastor Lightning. and I'm not going to go into everything else. I'll save that so you can hear it in the pew on Sunday. I, and I, then I if, will have to listen. I won't get to talk. I'll just listen. And then if all, all the rest of the listeners, if you want to listen to uh, my Transfiguration sermon of Pastor Hagen, uses that as a podcast next week. And then I'm just going to make sure in the sermon on Sunday, I'm going to keep mentioning Mount Calvary over Mount. and over again. The hill, the <laughs> hill that is Calvary. I mean, draw it out. Draw it out. Is there anything else in Mark chapter 15 of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion that you wanted to focus on? Because I wanted yes. to focus on, one, on the soldier at the end. Yes. I, oh, man, there's so much. I, I mean, we spend so much time every Lent that, that you can never get to the bottom of this this remarkable episode uh, that, that paid for our salvation. So yes, I do want to spend a lot more, but I, I think, well, maybe I'd, I'd want to say a thing or two about the burial, but why don't you go to the uh, soldier? Well, with the soldier, what struck me as I've been studying Mark, is we talked about in the introduction and the first chapter of Mark's gospel that the very first verse, Mark is saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
and then you have kind of bookends. That's one bookend, and then right at the end of Mark 15 is a second bookend. Uh, because the greatest proof that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God comes from the most unlikeliest of all the candidates in the gospel. A hardened, probably previously pagan commanding officer in the Roman army is able to see Jesus' hidden glory. He's able to see underneath the blood and gore. Despite the shame and the mockery, there is true glory. He gives that wonderful bookend between Mark chapter 1, verse 1 and Mark 15 as he gives the audible proof of Mark's written testimony, he says, surely this man was the Son of God. Uh, I, I guess maybe the only other things I wanted to say, I mentioned the burial a second ago, and uh, when you think of Mark's gospel in general, uh, critics of the Bible could easily point out that, well, there, there's one that says, uh, that Jesus was flogged, and then Pilate presented him to try to get the uh, Jewish ruling leaders to take pity on him. And here Mark says the the flogging came uh, in between the final verdict and Jesus' crucifixion. Um, I don't think we need to let that trouble us based on what we've talked about with uh, Mark's not necessarily following a chronological order. Um, and then the other thing was just dealing with Jesus' burial. That's a nice place to be, isn't it? Uh, the, the, of all the meditating that you do on Jesus' death, the part where you don't have any of the chief priests or Roman soldiers heaping their insults at him, uh, we can just sort of be alone in our grief as we think about Jesus dying and and the wonderful uh time that Joseph of Arimathea put in. We just actually, in our uh, daily Bible reading for my religion class, read about the chief pre- uh, the priests and uh, how they were not allowed to touch dead bodies unless it was a close relative. And then they said, for a close relative, you can make yourself unclean uh, by touching a dead body. And I, I thought of Joseph of Arimathea because um, he actually did this. He made himself unclean for uh, not for a blood relative, but uh, for for his Lord. And then you mentioned uh, the closeness of the tomb to to Golgotha, to the hill of Calvary, Mount Calvary. And, and that's the interesting thing, listeners. If you are able to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, like Pastor Lightning and I have been blessed to do on separate trips, it is really amazing that the one place they'll take you to uh, one site they think might be Golgotha, it looks like the, uh, the side of it looks like a skull. And then you just have a short walk to the garden tomb, and they have a big stone there, and you walk in where the angels would be. But then another place where they think that Golgotha was and the garden tomb was is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It doesn't look uh, it's not very appealing to us as Lutheran Christians or American Christians. Uh, it's very ornate uh, with a lot of Eastern Orthodox influence and so forth. But the key, though, is you can put your hand in a spot where they say Jesus' cross was, and then a short walk that's like a minute, and then you get to where they think Jesus' tomb was. Whether those two places were the right place, one or the other, or there's another place, they were very close uh, between the two, uh, between chapter 15 and chapter 16, between the cross and the burial. That, that was actually a point that came up. One of our, our group in the tour guide 
said to the tour guide at the garden tomb and the garden tomb they, they very much have you know they're they're trying to tell you this is this is a good reason why you should believe this is the spot uh, but he was very objective about it and somebody who did not like the church of the holy sepulcher asked well it's just silly that the the tomb site on the church of the holy sepulcher is so close to the golgotha site and the tour guide at the garden tomb said uh, well actually it would have been very close it says there was a garden nearby right so going into chapter 16 i want to focus on the women that come to the tomb to prepare jesus burial because sometimes you'll have critics of christianity that we're going to try and tell you that uh, christianity is anti woman And yet notice how important women are in the story of Jesus. They support his ministry. They are the the ones who see him die, uh, while the rest of the disciples, except for John, are hiding. They are the faithful ones who come to visit Jesus' grave early Sunday morning, and they are blessed to be the first ones to see Jesus alive. And I, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've often heard people say, that uh, at this time in Greco-Roman culture, uh, a woman's testimony would not have even been admissible in court in a court case, uh, which is uh, unthinkable in our day and age that uh, that people would do that. But uh, Jesus said, uh, "Well, he didn't say, but again, he communicated without words. I want the first eyewitnesses of my resurrection to be women." Yeah, and to that point, the angel says to the women. You go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And then later on, it says that Jesus appeared to the women and to the two, the Emmaus disciples, even though Mark doesn't mention them, and then to Peter. And again, remembering in our introduction to Mark's gospel that Mark is the author, but receiving the description from Peter by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write it all down, again, Notice how Peter is singled out in these in these places. And, and you can think of Peter talking to Mark about his guilt of denying Jesus. You know, he's not afraid to, to and cover that up when he tells that story to Mark to write down. And then uh, how excited he is to be included and singled out by Jesus that he is forgiven for that denial and going to be one of the apostles to share the message of the risen Christ. I don't know if we should spend a lot of time talking about this, but I, yeah, maybe we should touch on it, just because it, you usually see it in the printed versions of people's Bibles, the big debate over the, the long ending, the short ending, whatever ending of Mark. Uh, so it might raise questions in the minds of Christians, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing to admit that there, there are a lot of different sources for uh, how do we have the Bible that we have today. Uh, not sources that are different from one another. Actually, the remarkable thing is how many of them are so similar. Um, and and they're really just photocopies, kind of like you might uh, have a little bit of a different ink splot on a photocopy today. Well, you might have a little bit of a different lettering in, in some than in others. But uh, the, the main point is, um, verse 8 is a, a really odd place to just end the gospel. Uh, so there, there does seem to be a lot more that should be in there. Um, and so I, I don't really see, even when you look at the technical side of it, if we would dig deep into all of the, 
manuscript evidence. Uh, I think there's strong evidence that uh, we don't need to be too worried about cutting these verses out of the Bible. Uh, but uh, even without going into that big technical thing, uh, verse 8 just seems like an odd place to leave off. And with that, that the EHV, the Evangelical Heritage Version that we're using in our church and that Pastor Lightning and I are using for this study, it says there in one of the notes that the translation that they're using includes verses 9 through 20 because the vast majority of Greek manuscripts have been handed down to us and that uh, these verses uh, are in the earliest manuscripts from the 2nd century and these specific verses were used as Easter texts and Ascension Day texts. I actually was uh, citing these verses to um, a couple of my students, again, in my religion class, uh, to point out the saving nature of baptism. Uh, It's easy to think that, uh, well, actually, it's not easy to think, but you hear very often that uh, baptism is a work that you do in order to uh, show your faith or to publicly profess that you are now a Christian. And you certainly do that in baptism, but uh, the predominant idea is in American Christianity, that's the only thing that baptism is good for. And uh, Jesus says very clearly in these verses, no, uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And then talking about baptism, we had a funeral here for one of our saints a week ago, and we have a candle that is next to the baptismal font. And I explain in funerals that the Paschal candle is lit for three times in the church year. It's for the season of Easter. It's lit on the Easter vigil and then the Easter festival and then the other seven Sundays of Easter. It is lit for baptisms because we die to sin and are raised to a new life in Christ that connects us with Christ's baptism and it also connects us with a Christian funeral. And so the third time that that Paschal candle is lit is for a Christian funeral. And that's important too, because I want you to think about listeners of, you know, what are you going through right now? What problem, what difficulty, what struggle, what fear, what doubt, what debt, what crisis, what confusion, what debt or, or death are you facing? And so you point back to the resurrection. You point back to your baptism that connects you with the resurrection, what uh, that resurrection that gives you faith and hope and life even as you face death. That's how important chapter 16 is of Mark's gospel of the resurrection. And I think of it that early on in my ministry, you know, six months in, I had a really difficult time uh, and there's a big struggle. I wasn't sure how we were going to survive. We were already a church of like 15 members in our mission congregation, and a very prominent family left. And I called up another pastor, and he counseled me by saying, Mike, are you celebrating Easter this year? I said, Tom, of course I am. He said, then nothing else really matters, because Easter gives everything perspective, and that's the key for you. That no matter what you're facing, you have Christ. He comes back to carry your burdens, to forgive your sins, to wipe away your tears, to hear your prayers, to take away your burdens and frustrations, to comfort you when you mourn, to wash you clean in baptismal waters, to feed you with his body and blood, to give you life 
because he walked through the dark valley of the shadow of death. He came back to take you through that dark valley of death. And that gives everything perspective because no matter what, Easter happens. It, it is a historic fact. And uh, maybe if you're wondering about uh, the signs of, you know, drinking deadly poison or uh, driving out demons, speaking in new tongues, uh, and, and why, why can't we do those things today? Well, it says uh, pretty clearly um, that those were in the last verse, that the way that the Lord confirmed his word. So if you have the word, um, then uh, you no longer need that confirmed because uh, it's been written down for us. Uh, but uh, for the people who didn't have this uh, written record like we do today, uh, they had those signs and wonders. And maybe I'll just use that as sort of a springboard to talk about uh, another sign and wonder from the Old Testament, uh, the resurrection uh, theme that you can find in the prophet Jonah. That is a really good segue. Uh, yeah, Jonah chapter 1. We don't really know exactly when Jonah was a prophet. Uh, Best evidence is that he was preaching during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who reigned about 793 to 753 BC. And most people will focus on the, the prophecy of Jonah, these four chapters, as being about Jonah. It's really a story about God, about God's love for sinners, all of them, despite Jonah's indifference and disdain toward those whom he disregarded as being unworthy, as those he looked at as potential enemies. I think that uh, somebody had a good insight. I can't really give, I don't know who to give credit to for this, but uh, hearing about how, um, who wrote this book? I would say Jonah. Yeah, your 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 gut instinct is to say Jonah, and uh, this is this is really sort of a confession of sin for him, uh, as he's describing what a, a little brat he was, and uh, that that can't be an easy thing to do. Kind of like Peter with uh, Mark's gospel, confessing the sin of uh, denying Jesus and all of his mistakes in 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 that. Um, but uh, you have Jonah. And uh, God calls him to preach. Uh, he calls him to preach to people that were the exact opposite of what Jonah would have uh, liked. Um, and, and I think it was always presented to me as a kid that uh, Jonah was scared because the Ninevites were so uh, scary. They were a scary people, and they were a scary people. But it wasn't so much that Jonah was scared. Uh, he gives you the play-by-play commentary on his own actions at the end of the book. He says, uh, the reason I did not go to Nineveh is because I knew, Lord, that your word would change the Ninevites' hearts, and I didn't want them to be saved. Right, and that's really the theme of the four chapters of Jonah. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, the Lord says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? So the Lord was not willing to see the wicked people of Nineveh die forever in hell. What does Joseph's response to the Lord's call show about Jonah? Well, he is running away from the Lord's call. 
going toward Tarshish, which is like Spain, as opposed to Nineveh, which would be in modern-day Iraq. Uh, but like Pastor Lightenin said, uh, Jonah does not want to go to, uh, to visit these, these people. And I want you, listeners, to kind of think of when can you be like Jonah? And we might be afraid to go into a neighborhood with a gospel because the people there are different. Maybe they're a different nationality, a different economic status, that they're richer or poorer, a different culture. Whatever it is, all of us, because we're sinful by nature, have a prejudice, and we can become territorial of the gospel. And sadly, I've seen this during my years of work on our district mission board. Then maybe you have a church that is mission-minded and wants to start a new mission. Maybe it's a daughter congregation or a second site, but it's close to the territory of another church. And then that older church, they're afraid that they might lose members to a new church or new people in the area, they might be drawn to this new church. I've even had one older pastor threaten to embarrass me. That was his word, I'm going to embarrass you. because. I wanted to do something different that might encroach on his church's ministry area. And so what do we do? As district mission board members, pastors, teachers, lay people, we slowly and carefully work with pastors and members to encourage them to see the bigger picture. That mission work is not about your territory or my territory. It's about God's territory. It's about kingdom work. And the devil loves it. He laughs at us as Christians when we act like this. Basically, when we act like Jonah. And so we need to be like Jonah in chapter 2 where we repent. We turn back from the direction we're headed in and turn back to the Lord. It's about sharing a message of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and forgiveness with all of the Ninevites that are around us. You can certainly see... uh... God's grace in uh, using Jonah's rebellion uh, for a positive outcome. Um, I I don't want to say that. Uh, yeah, I, well, here's here's what I want to say. Um, even though God would have preferred that Jonah just say yes right away to going and preaching for the Ninevites, um, this is what God does for us. He takes our sinful actions and works them out for good. Uh, he did not want us to commit a sin. He did not predestine Jonah or will that Jonah would disobey him. Uh, that was a sin on Jonah's part. And yet God even used that sin to uh, really, I guess you could say, bring the uh, members of the ship crew to faith. Uh, they, he testified for them, and, and they were not even too sure that they wanted to throw him overboard. Uh, but uh, that is that is how God, how gracious God is that He even takes our acts of rebellion and turns them out for uh, more good. Then you go into Jonah chapter two, and Jonah is praying in the belly of a giant fish, and notice that the fish is more obedient than the prophet. Uh, and here. In this little book of Jonah, that's only four chapters long and very short chapters, there are by some counts 12 miracles. And some people will reject this book because of all of the miracles. Martin Luther recognized the miracles in the book of Jonah, but he did not reject the book on account of the miracles. Instead, he said, I myself would not believe it were it not written in Scripture. 
Uh, as long as you bring up Luther and, and we're sort of venturing into chapter 2, uh, I read something that he wrote about Jonah's prayer inside the fish. And there's a lot of good evidence that Martin Luther struggled with depression or with anxiety disorder. And he sort of uh, talked about Jonah being in the fish like this, which must have been a very depressing place to be with no light, uh, with not a lot of oxygen or uh, with with the smells that he must have been smelling. And yet Jonah sings this song of praise. And uh, Martin Luther sort of talks about um, hell. And I think it's in context, in, in the context of uh, the, the word Sheol, which is uh, the, the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead or for hell, uh, can be used in different things. And that's Jonah describing not the belly of the fish, but before God sent the fish. God was actually being gracious by sending the fish to uh, give him a, a place to survive until he could be uh, vomited out on the dry, dry ground. Um, I don't know, did you want to talk about any of the specific lines in the, in the song that Jonah sang in the fish? No, I was going to just remind people, I had told my eighth graders when I taught the, the lesson of Jonah to them, I said, you know, just so you know, Disney stole Jonah's story and then made it into Pinocchio, you know, the belly of, of Monstro the whale is Jonah in the belly of the fish. That, that is very interesting because I'm actually listening to a podcast right now that is doing a uh, detailed analysis of the Disney movie Pinocchio, <laughs> more for college students. Uh, but uh, it, that, yeah, I bet, I bet there's going to be some overlap and mentioning of Jonah when they get to that part of the movie. And Jesus references Jonah when the religious leaders ask for a miraculous sign to, from Jesus to prove that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says that no sign is going to be given except for the sign of Jonah. That as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then the greatest miracle in Jonah's little book is not Jonah surviving for three days in the belly of the fish, but the conversion of the entire city of Nineveh in chapter 3. But why did they believe? Uh, again, I like to teach it that uh, just as Jesus was raised from the dead after being in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, and that gave power to his testimony, well, Jonah was as good as dead in the belly of the fish. Uh, and so you had the power of his testimony, the power of God's word, and probably the powerful smell of s smelling like dried fish vomit. I, I guess I just wanted to wrap up chapter 2 by uh, pointing out the, the line in verse 9 that makes such a good description of salvation by grace alone. Salvation uh, belongs to the Lord, the Yahweh God, and uh, that sort of answers your question that you just brought up of how how were the people converted in uh, chapter 3. It's only because they uh, had the Holy Spirit at work through the words that Jonah was speaking. Uh, God took ownership of the saving work of, of his preached gospel in chapter 3, and when God takes ownership of it, uh, people come to faith and, and are saved and believe. And then Jonah chapter 3... Jonah walks for, uh, it's a three-day walk to probably get through all the, the shops and streets and the markets of 
of Nineveh, but he only needs one day because the message is so powerful. And what he has in in his writing is it's just a summary of what he preached of 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. So what did he preach? It's a message of law and gospel. I taught that to my seventh grade catechism class this week about that there's two messages in the Bible, law and gospel. The law, SOS, it shows our sin, followed by the gospel, SOS, it shows our Savior. The law tells us what to do and not do, uh, and then proclaims God's punishment. The gospel tells us that Jesus did it all and then proclaims God's forgiveness. That my job and Pastor Lightning's job, whether it's in the classroom or in the pulpit, is to make people feel the flames of hell licking at the soles of their feet and become uncomfortable in the pews. Then I get to soothe their burning soles of their feet uh, before their souls are burning in in hell by giving them the water of life, and then they can become comfortable and sit in comfortably in the pews. What would you say is the, uh, can, can, if you took Jonah's sermon theme, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed, uh, can you pick out the law and the gospel there? Well, I would, my theme would be, because I'm not one that preaches... No, I mean, I mean, if you just analyze Jonah's theme, where is the law in it and where is the gospel in it? Well, I would say the law is, uh, you're going to be overthrown. Yeah, yeah, but right before that is the gospel. And he, yeah. we're not saying that it's good to end on the law, but there's gospel in the, in the beginning words, right. 40 more days. 40 more days. You've got some time to repent. And that 40 days points to what we have as a season of Lent. You have 40 days from Ash Wednesday through Easter, not counting the Sundays. So it's it yeah it pops up a lot in the Bible. Uh, that's the amount of time that. Uh, well, what were the other ones? Uh, Moses was up on the mountain. There was um, Elijah going out again to a mountain. Uh, there, there, I I gotta give credit to mountains. There you there go. Are a lot, there are a lot of mountains, and there are God likes mountains, like Calvary. Yeah. Uh, if, did you want to talk about the ashes? Because the sackcloth and ashes, because uh, I don't know how you grew up. I grew up that we would go to church every Ash Wednesday, and I was kind of confused that it was an ashless. Yeah, yeah. Ash it, Wednesday. Not a lot of ashes. Yeah, not a lot of ashes in Lutheran churches for Ash Wednesday. And, and that's something that we do differently here in our church in Racine, Wisconsin, is that ashes and sackcloth in the Bible symbolize humility, repentance, mourning. And on Ash Wednesday, our tradition, and we'll be uh, using this tradition this coming Wednesday, is that we have a lady that makes a sackcloth banner every year. It's a brand new banner. And then we have, we invite the adults and the children to come forward to dip their finger in ashes mixed with oil and then make a little ashen cross on the banner. So it's pretty, pretty cool to have about 125 to 150 little crosses up there on uh, on the banner, or you can also make a little cross on your forehead. And uh, so we see those ashes on that banner for the 40 days of Lent, knowing that we're putting our sins symbolically on Christ. And then the really neat thing is then at our Easter vigil, the night before 
Christ's resurrection, when we celebrate that on Easter Sunday, we take that banner and we put it in the fire outside and we burn it. Again, symbolically saying our sins have been taken away. They have been burned up by Christ. Uh, God's wrath has been removed by what Christ accomplished on the cross and out of the grave. So we don't have an ashless Ash Wednesday. That's a good thing. Uh, and if you're wondering where we went in, in that direction on Ash, uh, uh, talking about Ash Wednesday and ashes, uh, I think maybe a, a good place to point out would be in verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Uh, the, 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 go, the two go together, sackcloth and ashes, sackcloth and dust. Um, and, and the point is, this is what we came from, and because of sin, we now have to expect that we will return to it. And uh, that's really the miracle. Uh, I like how you pointed that out before. The, the great miracle is right at this moment, the Holy Spirit working a change of heart in the king of Nineveh and in all of his people. And that's really the the key. This is the greatest miracle in all of Jonah. You might think of the other miracles of the storm and then being calmed when Jonah's thrown overboard or Jonah being swallowed up by the fish and then being able to stay alive in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights or, you know, the a vine growing up very quickly in one day in Jonah chapter four. But the greatest miracle is the conversion of an entire city from the greatest of them to the least uh, through God's word, the power of God's word. I I think I've said all I wanted to say about this other than just uh, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Um, so both of those are real. It, it's real that God was going to punish them. Uh, and then it, in a way you could say it's even more real that he had compassion on them. Uh, he did not do what he had planned on doing, which was to destroy them. Instead, uh, he, he, what, he was merciful to them and decided not to destroy them. And as you go to church over... Uh, the season of Lent, which will be beginning after the Transfiguration Sunday, and this Sunday, is whether both the Sundays in Lent and the Wednesdays in Lent, and then Holy Week, Ash Wednesday through Good Friday, remember that you want to come to God in humility, like sackcloth and ashes, and then look forward to God relenting of the disaster that he should bring on you, but instead he poured that disaster on his son instead. So we're going to be jumping around in the readings for next week, whether you're reading on your own or listening to Pastor Hagen reading it. Uh, you're going to be reading Jonah 4, then the prophet Joel, which is three short chapters, and then we get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So stay thirsty, my friends, and drink deeply from the water of life.